Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. Been watching a lot of Perry Mason lately, and uh, it's been treating me pretty well. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Perry Mason is a lawyer TV show that aired in the late 50s and early 60s. It's about Perry Mason and his pal Paul Drake, a private investigator, and these two refrigerator-shaped individuals go around and solve crimes, and no one will shut up about how handsome they are. And then, at the end of the show, they go out for steaks with Perry's secretary, Della, who they're both in love with. It's delightful. But I'm not going to spend this whole introduction talking about Perry Mason. No, I'm going to spend this introduction talking about the introduction to Perry Mason. Now, Hub, you might ask, why are you spending the introduction to your podcast about comic books by talking about the opening credit sequence to a show that aired 60 years ago? That is of no possible use to anyone. Well, fictional argumentative listener, that question is irrelevant, incompetent, and immaterial. That's a little something I picked up from Perry. And furthermore, I would point out that nothing I have ever said on this show has ever been of any use to anyone. So there. Anyway, there are a few different variations, depending on what season you're on, of the opening credit sequence to Perry Mason. But they all pretty much follow the same formula. It's a close-up on some legal files. A hand picks up those legal files. We pull back to see Perry Mason's face as he intensely reads these files. Something in them catches his attention. He looks up and appears confused, looks around him and thinks, where am I? Then realization dawns. I'm in a courtroom. He begins to look pleased. Then another thought occurs to him and he starts nodding to himself happily. I'm in a courtroom and I'm a very good lawyer. And then we're informed that this episode guest stars the guy who played Commissioner Gordon on the Adam West Batman show. That guy was in everything. In conclusion, Perry Mason's a goddamn delight. Oh, and the district attorney that he always faces off against is named Hamilton Berger, and nobody makes hamburger jokes about him. Can you imagine? But you didn't come here to hear me talk about an obscure piece of media from 60 years ago. You came here to hear me talk about an obscure piece of media from 35 years ago. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. In a dire dearth of strawberries, Doc Light licked beaver anus. You can follow in his footsteps, or you can hear this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. Castorium, the gift that keeps on giving. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 1, August 1984. Shadows in the Dark. Ooh, that is this close to being a Dio song. Nice. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by George Perez. Hooray! Inkted by George Perez. Lettered by Todd Klein. Colored by Adrian Roy. And edited by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Teen Titan Roll Call. Raven, Cyborg, Nightwing, Wonder Girl, Starfire, Beast Boy, 
and Jericho. Previously in Tales of the Teen Titans. Raven has been increasingly withdrawn lately on account of she's freaked out that her demonic bad dad, who lives in her bird-shaped soul tummy, might pop out and try to destroy the universe. Starfire is a space princess who has been exiled from her home world as part of a confusing treaty that keeps slave-trading space jerks from blowing up her planet. Beast Boy is an asshole. Gadzooks! For the first time in like 15 issues, will something involving Raven actually happen? Is Beast Boy still an asshole? And is that really all the recap we're going to need? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, yeah, it kind of seems like it will. He's actually pretty chill in this issue, but I've been burned on this one before, so I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, yeah, he is. And, yeah, I think so. See, this comic is supposed to take place right after Tales of the Teen Titans number 58, but it was published over a year before that issue came out, so in order to give themselves a little more wiggle room with what happened in the intervening issues, this story only touches on events of the last 14 issues in pretty broad strokes. Confused? Yeah, me too. You can listen to me try to explain it to Corey in a few minutes. I don't think our conversation will necessarily clear anything up, but at least you'll see that you aren't alone in being confused about it. The Teen Titans are doing some training exercises in their version of the Danger Room, which is to say their front yard. See, there's a copse of trees outside of their giant T-shaped skyscraper where they sometimes go to practice trying to kill each other, and that's what they're doing right now. If they really wanted to simulate the sort of combat conditions they generally find themselves in, they ought to take advantage of the fact that their base is on an island. I mean, how often do they find themselves fighting criminals in a tiny forest? But if they were to build themselves some docks? Maybe a warehouse? I guess maybe they're just worried that if they did, then actual criminals might just spontaneously appear there. Anyways, today's training exercise involves the rest of the team ganging up on the Titans' resident Renfair refugee, Joseph Wilson, a.k.a. Jericho. The mutton-chopped Marvel has been given a ten-minute head start, and Cyborg, Beast Boy, Nightwing, Starfire, and Wonder Girl's objective is to find and subdue their body-jumping buddy. Beast Boy turns into an adorable bloodhound and quickly sniffs out Jericho's hiding place. Seems like this was a pretty quick exercise. Or it would be, if it weren't for one very important fact. Beast Boy is an idiot. The Emerald Adolescent somehow forgot that making eye contact with Jericho is a very bad idea. I mean, in my experience, it's best to avoid making eye contact with pretty much anyone, but making eye contact with Joe is a particularly bad idea. The voiceless vigilante turns into a ghost, jumps into Gar's body, and starts wearing it around like a furry green bathrobe. The rest of the team takes this opportunity to live out their dream of trying to beat the crap out of Beast Boy. Hooray! Unfortunately, the pubescent polymorph cerebral cockpit is for once occupied by a vaguely competent pilot who manages to elude their attacks long enough to make eye contact with Starfire, and then jump into her body. After a few shenanigans, Cyborg manages to subdue the possessed princess. Jericho tries to ghost into his tin-plated teammate, but Vic cleverly avoids this gambit by closing his eye and using only his infrared sensors. Pretty sneaky. 
Wonder Girl ensnares her possession-prone pal in her magic lasso, and Nightwing puts him in a headlock, and looks like he's about to give him a pretty good nuggie. Looks like the Titans' little game is over. As if to punctuate this fact, Raven teleports dramatically into the middle of the clearing where the rest of the team is gathered. The avian-themed Azerathian empath earnestly addresses her allies. Hey guys, this is really important. I'm a very private person with a lot of trust issues, so it's difficult for me to ask for help, but I've been going through a lot of serious shit lately, and I really need someone to talk to about it. Wow, that is a really big step for Raven. Good for her. Then Jericho thinks to himself, Teehee, everyone is distracted by our obviously distraught friend and teammate being vulnerable. What a great opportunity for me to win the dumb game that everyone stopped playing because it was over. I am such a scamp. Damn it, Jericho. This is what you get for hanging out inside of Beast Boy for too long. The curly-haired crime fighter does his lemur eyes thing, and much to everyone's horror, hops into Raven's body. Not cool. When you guys were doing your little training exercise, there was a tacit understanding that those involved might get possessed when they agreed to take part. But Raven didn't even know what the Titans were doing, and certainly never agreed to play. You've had those creepy-ass powers long enough to know that you've got to establish some ground rules about consent with your teammates. As if to underscore this point, as Jericho starts ghosting into her, Raven starts yelling, No! What the fuck are you doing? Don't do this! Jericho's horrific invasion of privacy is not without consequences. As soon as he attempts to enter Raven's mind, the impetuous creep is psychically electrocuted by an unknown mystical energy and is knocked on his ass. Aghast both at her teammate's poor judgment and its result, a terrified Raven teleports herself back to her room in the tower. The Titans gather around a recovering Jericho and are like, Jeez, what's her problem? Damn it, Titans! When Jericho regains himself, he is super freaked out and starts signing frantically that when he made non-consensual contact with Raven's mind, he felt an overwhelming sense of evil and wishes there were some way of knowing what it was so that he could help her. Yeah, gee, if only there was some way of knowing what was wrong and how you could help her. Like, maybe waiting for her to finish talking and not just pulling a mind control prank when she started to ask you for your help jerk. The gang heads back to the Titan Tower and talks about how worried they are about Raven. Jericho heads up to Raven's room to check on her, and while he doesn't actually apologize, he does generally emote sadness at her in ways that could charitably be read as contrition. But in light of later events, it's likely just concern and pity. Raven is surprisingly glad to see Joey, and after a brief monologue about how sad and scared she is, she asks her questionably contrite compadre, to hand her her hooded cloak so she can prepare herself to talk to the rest of the team. After sending Joe to tell the rest of the gang that she'll be right down, Raven attempts to contact her spiritual mentors in the mystical realm of Azeroth and seek their aid in combating her demonic dad Trigon's influence. But, despite the fact that Trigon is essentially the malevolent spiritual sausage that was formed when the Azerathians discarded the evil snouts and assholes from their soul before toddling off to their cosmic utopia, the pious hypocrites who raised Raven remain silent. Man, fuck those bearded fucks. Their sausage, their responsibility. Raven heads downstairs and informs the rest of the team that she will be leaving the Titans. Starfire is like, What? No! 
You're our friend and we love you. You're an important part of our team. Raven responds, Thank you for saying that, but all I ever do is wait in the car and occasionally try to kill all of you. Wonder Girl is like, Well, yeah, but we still like you better than Wally or Beast Boy. Raven replies, Good point, but I'm still going to leave in the morning. Goodbye. And with that, the understandably angsty empath teleports back up to her room to pack. You know, considering that she has stated that every time she uses her magic, her father's evil grows stronger, she sure does teleport a lot. She must really hate stairs. Meanwhile, in the vegan star system, on Princess Coriander's home planet of Tamarind, okay, I know I've brought it up before, but those names are absolutely cribbed off an Indian food menu. Anyway, Coriander's dad, King Vindaloo, probably, has a big announcement. Tamarin's war with the shithead slave traders of the Citadel is finally over. Hooray! As tears of joy fill the pupilless green eyes of the populace, Queen Biryani proclaims that they have sent an envoy to Earth to inform their daughter Starfire that she can once again return home. Aww. I mean, the Titans are going to miss her, but... Little Prince Chicken Tikka Masala will be so happy to have his sister back. Back at the Titan Tower, Beast Boy is having trouble sleeping and goes looking for Cyborg. He finds Vic hanging out in the screening room. The mostly molybdenum marvel informs his shitty green pal that he has been examining pictures of Raven and is pretty freaked out by what he's discovered. It turns out that since the first time they met her, Raven's face has gradually gotten 83% more evil looking. If this trend continues, within a few months, she'll look like a cross between Bob from Twin Peaks and Ann Coulter. <sighs> Down the hall, Jericho is also suffering from insomnia. He sits cross-legged on his bed and plays the acoustic guitar like he thinks he's on the campus quad at a liberal arts college. But even that doesn't soothe him. So he walks over to Raven's room, lets himself in, and watches her sleep for a minute. What the fuck is wrong with you? Oh, but wait, it gets worse. Against her previously expressed wishes, Joe Wilson uses his powers to crawl into his sleeping teammate's mind. Oh, fuck you. Also, how does that even work? Don't you have to make eye contact? Does Raven sleep with her eyes open? Creepy. Anyway, inside Raven's brain, it's kind of like that uninhabited dimension that she sometimes goes to to yell about her feelings. The one that's filled with stalagmites, stalactites, and random lightning. Only, now the stalagmites are made of tortured, writhing bodies, and the stalactites are made of demon skulls. It is extremely metal. Jericho is inside Raven's projection of her body that is inside of this unsettling mindscape. He slash they begin to ascend the central stalagmite, but one of the tortured, writhing bodies reaches up and grabs his slash their leg. It's Raven's mom, Morella who sacrificed herself to hold Trigon at bay. Arella's like, What the fuck are you doing here, Raven? Wait a minute. You aren't Raven. What the specific fuck are you doing here, invasive stranger? Before a startled Jericho has a chance to respond, a nine-story Trigon appears out of nowhere and is like, Yeah, seriously, what the fuck are you doing here? Oh, wait, I know the answer to that one. You are getting psychically tortured by me. Trigon! And with that, 
Trigon blasts Joe with Hellfire, which knocks him out of the projection of Raven's body and into a projection of his own body. Then Trigon melts all the flesh off that body, regrows it, and melts it off again. Hooray! Okay, not really hooray, but Joe totally had that coming. Trigon states his desire to continue torturing Jericho indefinitely. Raven, who has now retaken possession of her dreamscape avatar, isn't too thrilled about that plan and shrieks her objection to it, which somehow knocks Jericho out of wherever they are and back into his body in Raven's room. The rest of the team is awakened by Raven's apparently dimension-spanning cry of anguish, and they rush into her room, only to find Jericho, alone and traumatized. When he recovers enough to regain some semblance of coherence, Jericho does his best to explain to the rest of the Titans what has just happened, but he too is at a loss as to where Raven is now. As our titular teenagers attempt to puzzle this out, their T-shaped headquarters is engulfed with an otherworldly thunderstorm, and the sound of Trigon's disembodied, inhuman laughter rings through their hallways. That's probably not a great sign. Unless Trigon is just laughing because he's watching the premiere of Who's the Boss? No, this is the August issue. Who's the Boss didn't debut until September. Also, wasn't very funny. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing fine. How are you? I am doing great. Really? Yeah, I'm actually very excited about this comic book, and it's been a little while since I've been excited about a new Teen Titans comic book. It's a, it's like a new beginning, sort of. Mm. It's like a complicated new beginning. Yeah, I guess so. With some common threads. Certainly. I mean, it is very much a continuation, but it's issue number one. Number one? Number one with a bullet. I feel like you've explained this before. I don't think I've explained it well. Okay. So, the issue we're covering today is New Teen Titans... Number one, volume two. So, in 1984, DC started doing this thing with some of their more popular titles. It's called the new format. And they were kind of dipping their toes into the direct market publication, which means this comic was only available in comic book stores. It wasn't available on newsstands, which had been previously their primary way of selling comic books. Or subscribers? Can subscribers get the... I think they must have been able to, because there's a house ad in here for... Seems pretty exclusive, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that was the idea. I think that was kind of part of what they were selling with it. It was expensive for back then. It's $1.25. Whoa, 1980s dollars, that's... I know, it could buy probably a uh, new car, I would imagine. Not a fancy car. I think, was that the year the Yugo came out? Yeah, or a Lacar. Oh, yeah, you could get a Renault Lacar for like a dollar fifty, dollar twenty-five Canadian jar of cocaine or whatever. However, they did that back yeah, then. Yeah, I think primarily it was sold in mason jars to mm -hmm. keep out the moisture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a Yugo and a jar of blow for the uh -huh. same prices as fine publication. I know, 
But it was printed on super fancy paper, which is awesome. It's called Baxter paper. Uh, the first comic that I think DC printed on that was uh, a miniseries called Camelot 3000, which was in 1982, which is a dope series. But for some of their like more prestigious titles, uh, it was New Teen Titans, Legion of Superheroes, and Batman and the Outsiders. They started doing this thing where... They restarted it with number with issue number one. Mm-hmm. They went all out, did it with the Baxter paper, a neater binding process. It's a really, really pretty book. Mm-hmm. And they did kind of like a slow closeout of the other title. And then after a year's time, that other title, which they had changed the name of to Tales of the Teen Titans, started to be reprints of this. So there was like... About a year-long period, a little bit over a year, where these titles were both coming out with new material. Which, I think, is responsible for what we had, I think, both felt about the issues we had been covering, which was that they were in a holding pattern. And the reason for that is that these issues, despite the fact that they were coming out at the same time as the new issues, were set six months in the future from those issues. So those issues we had been reading were essentially a prequel to these, which meant that you had to have some kind of character stasis. Because by the time that series winds up, the characters have to be in the place they are at the beginning of this. And that didn't piss anybody off? I think it must have. It must have, right? But then after that year, once they stopped doing the new stories in Tales of the Teen Titans, Tales of the Teen Titans becomes reprints of this, and then those are available at newsstands. It was a weird system, and I don't think it was all that successful. Uh, Just, I feel like if it was, they would have done that with more series rather than just those three. Well, you could really see that pissing off a consumer who feels like they're being asked to buy two copies of the same thing for a franchise that they enjoy. Well, it wouldn't be two copies of the same thing. Like, once you have this, you wouldn't need to go on with the other title. I don't know, unless you have a thing about collecting things going in a certain order and all of that. Yeah, it did confuse me when I was putting together my run of this because I still have several of the issues that are reprints. Like, I have issue 60 of Tales of the Teen Titans, which is a reprint of this. But it was kind of neat to compare and contrast those. Like, flipping through and seeing the one in the newsprint and the one on the Baxter paper and seeing, like, the different color separations. And there is one big difference between them that I that I noticed that I want to touch on later. I'm excited about this comic book because we are no longer in a holding pattern. We have a new story that is going forward. Uh, things maybe can happen, and it seems like things are poised to happen in this issue in a way that they haven't been in a while. It starts with a bang. Well, you ready to get into it? Sure. George Perez is back. Yeah, I saw Wolfman and Perez on the cover, and I thought, all right. And it's Perez doing his own inks in it, and you can tell there is, like, a little something extra in this. It is just gorgeous. I think it was maybe coming out bi-monthly instead of every month, and it really looks like a labor of love. Perez's art really elevates, I think, even from what he had been doing in the New Teen Titans, and the fact that he's doing his own inking and it is reproduced so beautifully, it's really something. It is. It is creepy as hell. 
the oh, Trigon yeah. stuff and the creepy, I don't even know how you describe it, body part pathway bridge thing. Yeah, the bridge of decaying bodies that they run across. That must have taken so long to draw. It is crazy. It is very, very intricate. The other change in the creative staff on this is that Todd Klein is the letterer. And it's a subtle difference, but it does make a difference. And he does a great job. He's an amazing letterer. Mm -hmm. And just the, the layouts of everything. Honestly, the story isn't anything that great. I definitely have some issues with some of what happens in it. But man... Perez just really elevates everything in this book. I think there's a tendency to think of comic book writers as being auteurs and that they really create everything that goes into the book. And that can be the case with some writers in terms of them really being meticulous and overly describing what happens in each panel. With this, I feel like so much of the flow of action and the way that the story is told is done through the way that Perez lays things out. And I know it was a very collaborative process between him and Wolfman, but it really seems more like, yes, Wolfman is absolutely the writer, but it seems as though Perez is the director, almost. And also, to an extent, if we're going with like the movie metaphor, the way that he draws characters is almost like the acting is better in this, because you get different expressions coming through from people that you don't always. And it's neat. Absolutely. I mean... The script is one thing, but if you got a lousy director or mm -hmm. a bad cinematographer... Then you end up with a pile of poop. Often, metaphorically. Oftentimes, yeah. Hopefully, metaphorically. Hopefully. Unless you just get so mad that you start eating celluloid. Well, then, I don't imagine poop. that would... That would I mean, probably give you the poops and then you'd have a pile of poop. Well, it's fiber-intensive, but also just probably really hard to digest. may have the opposite effect. Oh... There's a lot that we don't understand about eating film. cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that happens in this book is that we find out that Raven is getting progressively eviler and has been for quite some time. Man, I realized I have not been paying enough attention to, like, I'm in my mid-40s and, you know, things change and... My friends are getting older. Mm -hmm. It could be some of them are becoming evil. It's possible. Have any of them developed be more pronounced evil. widow's peaks? Yeah, this guy. You it's, are? Yeah, I could be. You're not going like Lugosi or anything, though. No, you don't, don't have a Dracula. No, but it's it's a tiny bit evil. You're getting a little bit eviler. Yeah, a tiny bit. So Cyborg points out that there have been physical changes in Raven's face that uh, are clearly the sign that she has been getting more progressively evil. Her cheekbones are becoming more pronounced, mm -hmm. and she's getting more of a widow's peak. The other thing that is happening is her eyebrows are getting more recursive and higher up on the forehead, which made me wonder. We see that Trigon is described in this issue as evil incarnate. Until now, evil has always been an intangible, a thought, a concept. People became evil. They acted evilly. They committed an evil deed. Now Jericho knows he has seen evil personified. So if he is evil personified, and part of the way that manifests is that he has an extra set of eyeballs on his forehead, mm -hmm. maybe when people start looking evil and their eyebrows get eviler, 
it is because their eyebrows are going up onto their forehead and trying to form new eyes. And that was maybe what was happening with Blackfire, mm. Starfire's evil sister. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what's happening with Raven. Getting a new set of evil peepers. Uh-huh. So uh, the eyebrows are the window to the evil soul. Oh, man, that is so complicated. I don't like that. Well, that's theology for you. Touche. The other possibility there, and what I like to believe is happening, is at the time he drew this, Perez knew he wasn't going to be working on Teen Titans issues that were coming out in Tales of the Teen Titans for about a year. So he may have just been saying, you know what, people are going to be drawing Raven wrong. (laughs) I better try to retcon some kind of an explanation for that into it, because nobody can draw her like me. So I'll just say that... uh, yeah, they've been. Uh, she's been getting eviler, and that's why she's been looking different for the past few issues. Ah, that would be clever. I don't know for sure that that's what's happening, but that's what I like to believe. Now, when Cyborg has that revelation that he's been watching the tape and has been taking note of Raven's evilification process, Beast Boy stops by his room and asks him if he's watching X-rated films. Cyborg's response delighted me so much he doesn't just say like no you fucking pervert or no that's not what i'm doing he says that stuff's boring garbage shut down shut down but also i like that he doesn't just describe it as garbage he specifically says that it's boring which makes me think that cyborg is into some very specific shit (laughs) (laughs) And he does not have time for Beast Boy's vanilla ass and his dumb, boring, missionary porn. Mm. What do you think um, Cyborg's into? Oh, jeez. I don't know. Probably like cake sitting. Uh, Just ladies sitting on cakes. Is that a thing? Honestly, anytime you think of anything that people might be into sexually... They are into it. It it exists. I know. I thought you were joking about the dragons and cars thing. No! There's a lot of art of dragons fucking cars. Yeah, that really Maybe that's me. what Cyborg's into. That would actually kind of make oh, sense. Mechanical. I mean, he's, yeah, he's part mechanical. I feel like they didn't come out with that until later, though. <laughs> I bet there are some fucking Victorian arrow derogotypes. <laughs> Is that what they're called? <laughs> Etched plates of carriages being porned on by like dragons in top hats well if there isn't there's gonna be now (laughs) yep you're welcome internet and cyborg is super into it (laughs) what are you like oh into a victorian car dragon stuff you know yeah well he doesn't have time for your (laughs) boring boring garbage fair enough okay Another milestone happens in this issue. Hmm. Coriander and Dick break the monsters barrier for comic books. Hmm. The monsters were the first television couple to appear in the same bed together. Really? And I don't know if they're the first, but it did cause quite a stir when this issue came out. And Coriander and Dick were sharing a bed. It had been implied that they were dating, but... uh. These are some unmarried teenagers that are uh, caught mid-canoodle by the Trigon Thunderstorm. Yeah, I so, guess that could be a big risque deal. risque stuff. Mm. It is weird to watch like old sitcoms like 
I Love Lucy or whatever, where you see their bedroom and they are each in their own twin bed. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's kind of something to be said for that. Sound. Sound sleeping. sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping your own covers. Right. Yeah. I, or, I think... or just wadding them up and throwing them on the floor not getting in trouble. Yeah. Do whatever you want, man. That's your twin bed. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think that was a pretty big deal to have uh, Dick and Starfire in the same bed. And uh, I'm pretty sure they got some some blowback about that. (laughs) Oh, Corey, (laughs) grow up. I can't. When we did see them first in bed together, it was because there was the storm that started happening. And they both seemed really alarmed at the idea that there was a storm going when it had been nice out a second ago. Mm Mm-hmm. This was August in New York. I feel like that's just how weather works there. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember thunderstorms. They just come out of nowhere. Yeah, heat, lightning. Yeah. That's a New England thing. Yeah, I mean, they're not New England. They're New York, but still, same thing. Pretty close. Same next, region of the country. Door. Like, I can see Dick being, like, a real weather nerd. And, like, maybe he does just have a barometer going in the bedroom. To, ham, like, ham you know. radio. Yeah, he's got a ham radio set. He's got a barometer. It's um, it's part of what he's into. Police like uh, like Cyborg is into the uh, dragons and cars and top hats. D- yeah, Dick is just super into like barometric pressure readings. That is like the most boring sounding fetish. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's Dick for you. I hesitate to speculate. So of... you don't want to intrude on his bedroom activities. You don't want to be a real Jericho. Yeah. Yeah. Jericho fucks up big in this issue. Nearly constantly. It's... uh, I'm not a religious person, but that whole... The road to hell is paved with good intentions? Man. The idea that Raven has asked him specifically not to enter her mind. It's such an obvious consent issue and he ignores that because he thinks he knows better and he wants to help her and it's for her own good and it's super fucking creepy and not okay and it happens both times he he goes inside her mind and is instantly recoiled by what he sees in the initial instance when they are having their war games where they're playing their weird superhero version of tag or whatever and that was almost like I guess understandable because no. she, she didn't say... She did. Oh, she, did she before? Well, she shows up and she is super upset. And she says, my friends, please listen to me. I have urgent need of your aid. Starfire says, Raven, where have you been? Raven says, Coriander, stand back away from me and simply listen to what I have to say. Jericho hears this. He's right there. And he just gets a grin on his face and is like, I can win this game by jumping into her body. Isn't it written? There's something really... Isn't it written, though, in the way that makes it sound like he somehow missed all that? Where he was just like, I'm jumping into people's bodies, and then she shows up, and I did it? But Jericho fails to hear Raven's trembling voice. Indeed, her appearance only means that the war games are far from over. He moves towards the troubled empath. Their eyes lock, and then he jumps into her body. Okay, so the way it's written doesn't sound like he just didn't hear her. He said it fails to hear her, which could mean he he just ignored it. It says he fails to hear the trembling in her voice or whatever. But either way, what she is explicitly saying, you can miss the tone and still be like, oh shit, what she she is saying 
explicitly, I have important news, I want your help. They're all saying she never asks for help when she needs it. And the one time when she does ask for help, he's like, hee hee, I'm going to jump into your body. Yeah, good point. I'd, initially, when I read that, I read it as like he just didn't hear any of it. And he was like, hey, somebody else showed up. But I think that may have been what they were attempting. And it actually reading that and then going back and rereading it made me wonder if Wolfman forgot that Jericho isn't deaf. Right, because that's the way that it is. It, that's the way that I actually read that it. That would be the way that it yeah. would make more sense. Yeah. But he's not deaf. He's mute because a fucking terrorist slit his throat, and so he can't talk. But he's never been deaf. He, he knows sign language because it's the only way he can communicate Yeah, because he can't talk. But he's not deaf. and yeah. He heard all it, that shit. He should know better. Yeah. Than to do that. It's so fucked up. And nobody calls him on it. Nobody's upset with him for doing that afterwards. And they never get back to what Raven's problem had been even. They just go on and say, like, it's so weird. She's so withdrawn. She never asked us for help. She just asked you for help. And that was what happened when she did. And then that later on, he's like, she's really troubled. She said that I should stay back from her and that she's going through some important shit. But I think I could just help her if I invade her mind. Yeah, that was... It was so fucked up. And Bad. he gets horribly tortured while he's in there by Trigon. I'm not going to say good, but good. Oh, shit. I guess I did say it. That's how it works. When Trigon initially attacks him... It is a gorgeous double-page spread of Trigon rearing back and saying, Gaze upon the unholy visage of Trigon. And we see him using some hellfire to melt all of the flesh off of Jericho's bones, mentally. It also looks like Trigon is just roaring in fury or pain, because what actually looks like is happening in that is that he has accidentally just hellfire burned his own dick off. <laughs> it's like he's trying to swat a fly and has just punched himself in the face. But the way that his hand is Wait, have you done facing... That? I don't try to punch a fly generally when it lands on me. But maybe <laughs> sometimes? Did I tell you about the time where I had this really big bag of shredded cheese? You have never told me about the time you had a big bag of shredded cheese. Tell me more. So, you know, you can buy, like, the the big blocks of it for pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. It's way more expensive to buy it shredded. Right. So I bought the big block, and then I shredded it with a food processor. And I yeah, put you're it in no fool. Bag. I mm -hmm. know, smart. Um, but then I accidentally knocked the Ziploc bag off the counter, and then I got worried it was going to, you know, hit the floor and open up. So uh -huh. I grabbed it real fast in such a way that the momentum of the bag came up and smacked me right in the man parts real hard. And then I dropped the bag and I fell down <laughs> and I landed on my butt. And then I just laughed because oh. it hurt, but it was, yeah, it was a special You moment. pulled a real trigon there. I did. Now I... imagine if that shredded cheese had been hellfire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would have been so upset. I think you might have made that face. <laughs> Yeah, that's what he looks like. So that was pretty funny. But then he goes on to uh, tell Jericho, Your flesh will slowly burn, but you will not die. Your bones will crumble into ash, but you will not die. You will live forever in pain, forever in horror, forever, and still you will not die. Damn! Mm. That's some cold shit. It is. And the thing about this whole 
sequence that's really frustrating to me also is I feel like Raven, because she's experiencing this and seeing it unfold, is almost like the one that's receiving the a lot of it because she feels bad for Joe for, you know, trying to help her, even though that was all fucked up. She feels bad that he did that and that he's getting tortured and then yeah. she sort of, yeah, I guess, like disintegrates in order to get him out there because that's the other thing that's not super clear with all of this is what happens when you use your superpowers to jump into somebody else's body but their body's in a different dimension and it all becomes very confusing there's a lot of very confusing things about both jericho and raven's powers and so when they're used in concert it's just a big old game of calvin ball where you don't know what the fucking rules are then when he pops back out again he starts signing really fast and dick's like whoa slow down i can't understand what you're saying that's the second time that happens in this issue, which makes me wonder, do you think that Dick knows sign language? I think he knows like, I don't know, 20, maybe 50 signs. So and you're saying he is perhaps less literate in sign language than Coco the gorilla. Um, I don't know how many signs she knows. More but... than 50. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think he just plays it off like because context is pretty big and... Yeah, I think he just doesn't know it. It's his reactions whenever Jericho is talking are like the way the illiterate neighbor would be in a very special episode of a sitcom. Where it's like, uh, I'll read that book later. I I'm just really busy right now. And then they run away. I think that's what's going on with Dick. I don't think he knows sign language. I think he's just bluffing. Because he cannot bear to admit that he doesn't know something. I remember watching one of those, uh, like, after-school PSA-type things, and there was a dad was illiterate. Oh. And uh, somebody was telling him to do something at the factory, and he had to, like, set the punch machine to put holes and things, and he was drawing this elaborate thing with, like, a boxing glove. And Oh. I was so impressed. I was like, man, that guy can draw so fast. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's a type of literacy. It's like hieroglyphics. Yeah, so Dick him. maybe is just like, he knows... Okay, ten signs. He knows, like, like father the middle finger. and good, <laughs> and, like, mom, dad, good, please, thank you. But he doesn't, because he doesn't know father, because he can't understand it when Jericho is signing the word father. Because <laughs> he's saying, oh, Lord, Vic, he's signing too fast. Can you read it? And Vic says, yeah, he keeps saying father. That's kind of a giveaway. <laughs> That's a actually. dead giveaway. Dick does not know sign language. He does know how to wear a nice robe, though. Pretty cool. The robe. The yeah. robe is pretty cool. Faking that you know sign language is not. The second story, the B-plot in here, we find out that the war between the Citadel and Tamarind is over. And she can come back home. And she can come back home and her parents are elated. Apparently the war ended in the pages of the Omega Men comic book, which... It's nice to have that bit of continuity because we did see the uh, the Blackfire storyline did involve the Omega Men. Mm -hmm. What do you think happened? How did the war end? How would they defeat it? Do you think the parrot from Zubilee Zoo lady showed up and just scared the horrible racial caricatures of Idi Amin so badly that they gave up? I hope that is indeed what happened. I had forgotten about that for a minute. Yeah? Now I remember all of it. Cool. Let's go with Parrot. Yeah, Scary Parrot Lady from Zoobly Zoo saved the day. Yep. Nice job. Birds, one. 
out of a large number <laughs> of other points that they don't okay, have. Yes, the birds have very slightly redeemed themselves in this one instance. Oh man, did you get that Why article? Why did you I sent? send that to me? <laughs> <laughs> I sent Corey an article about a four, uh, three foot yeah. prehistoric carnivorous parrot that lived in New Zealand. That was not the biggest one. Did you read the whole thing? One of them was three meters tall. That's a 12 foot tall bird, man. That's horrifying. I was worried you had been sleeping too well. Well, thanks, buddy. Hey, I'm here to help. Did I send you the video with the New Zealand parrots eating the fat off of the kidneys of still living sheep? No. It's filmed that night. Don't do that. It's filmed that night so you can see their what eyes. What the fuck? They, they, because the sheep are just like, you know, they don't know what to do. And the, these parrots like the, the fat around their kidneys, which are close to their spine. Does it kill them? Eventually, yeah, but the parrots sit there and they, they peck at them and they start eating the fat from, the, like, they're standing on the back of these sheep. And the sheep can't get away because it's surrounded by all these other sheep and they just pick one at a time. Motherfucker! It's horrifying, dude. And then you sent me that shit. <laughs> I was like, imagine okay. the size of the sheep they, they could eat the fat off of. Which has a thing. There, I mean, I guess they had mammoths and stuff, but it wasn't like a giant mammal time. It was mostly giant, like, scary bird time back then. And lizards. Ugh. So, I Not mean, cool. birds took one step forward in our estimation, but they have taken several steps back. You should check that video out. It's I creepy. disagree with that sentiment. I should not check that video out. I will never watch that video. That is my solemn promise to myself. Well, don't be surprised when it pops up. Dude, you're not going to fucking rickroll me with any fucking <laughs> carnivorous parrot videos. I just won't watch. So, yeah, back on uh, Tamarind, uh, Coriander's uh, dad, probably Garam Masala... Um, and, not and his that's, that's and his and his beautiful wife. Oh, yeah, well he he might be a grandfather. He's got all his other kids. He's got that one kid that's cosplaying as Namor. Uh, that kid's probably named um, Barbecue Rub <laughs> Prince Turmeric. Okay, and his uh, lovely wife uh, Cumin nephew Anato. Uh huh, and their boring son. Salt. Mm. He's very popular. Sure. But he's boring. Mm-hmm. The porn that he watches would <laughs> make Cyborg be like, that's boring garbage. Yeah, he and Beast Boy should hang out. Nobody should hang out with Beast Boy. Oh, that's true. He should be punished. Yeah. Although, he does turn into a dope-looking bloodhound in this issue. And has a fun name for it. It's a uh, Belvedere Bloodhound? Inspector mm-hmm. Belvedere Bloodhound? And then he almost gets his uh, buttocks shot off, which is pretty funny. <laughs> a lot of fun stuff happens with that. Yep. But, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. What do you, what do you think's going to happen with this Tamarind thing? They send an envoy out to pick up Coriander. Uh, they're all super stoked that the war's over. We're going to find out, man. The ship's going to ostensibly land on Earth and be like, hey, it's time to go. And what, what do you think the envoy's name is? You think they name their ships spicy things, too? No, the envoy is the guy on the ship. Oh, I thought it was a vehicle, like a Buick Envoy. <laughs> oh, that would be a good name for a Buick. Yeah. No, the Envoy. Uh, Just Sporty Spice? No, I'm going to call him All Spice, because he's got kind of a big... Oh, you think he's really powerful? I think he likes to... He's you know, putting on airs. Yeah. yeah. Like, he wants to negotiate from a point of strength. Because really, All Spice is just kind of like fancy cinnamon. 
He makes it sound like he's fucking Odin or some shit. Like, who even decided to call Allspice Allspice? Yeah. Right? It's not even... It's like three spices, right? No, it's a berry. It's just one it's thing? A, it's one little hard berry. Oh, fuck that guy. Yeah, you grind it up with your cloves and your cinnamon to make your pie spice. I don't. Well, just because you got people to do, do <laughs> yeah. that for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm just busy. saying, it's a bullshit name <laughs> for an envoy. That's my point. It's a bullshit name for a fucking spice. Now I'm pissed off about that. Good. Man, fuck that spice. Go back to tamarind. You ready to get into the minutia? I don't see why not. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> Rick, would you mind singing this in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Corey. Yes. Let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you feel is worthy of note? I liked on page 23 when Cyborg called Trigon. I shouldn't have written so small. Hold on. A other dimensional freak show? Yeah. Yeah, that was mine too. All right. It's the best one. And there aren't that many to choose from. We've got, I believe, Cyborg calls Gar a salad head again. Yeah, Rust Bucket. That's just kind of affectionate banter at this point. But yeah, other dimensional freak show. Pretty good. Pretty good. He's not just a freak. He's a whole freak show. I really like Cyborg in this. I do too. And yeah, that's the bozo. We didn't have any natty bees in this. Not a one. We did get some phonetically spelled out slang from Cyborg. But it's weird because the one that stood out for me the most is the word was is spelled W-U-Z, which is pronounced exactly the same. So why bother? I don't know why you would bother. I guess just uncharitably to... Say, like, he... To other him? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you liked Cyborg a lot in this issue. So, every issue of a Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans. And, after the last episode we recorded, we agreed that every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad, and who was your Beast Boy? Interestingly... My Beast Boy for this issue was not Beast Boy. Okay. But it was Joe. Yeah, no, he was awful. We we talked about it a lot and just the issues of consent I'm, that surround his character are horrifying in this issue. He does a terrible fucking job. I did not like it. Nope. Nope. Bad job. Fucking listen to people. Yeah, I mean, the first one I forgave him for because I forgot he was mute, I guess, and just assumed he was deaf also. And I was like, okay, he just, somebody showed up and he was like, hey, we're still all just playing a stupid game. In retrospect, that was not at all how it went down. No. And just the visual imagery of him sneaking into Raven's bedroom and invading her psyche. So bad. It's just awful. And bad job, Jericho. Bad job. Yeah, you was... are a real fucking beast boy in this issue. He really was. I was sitting there reading this next to my partner. And when that happened, I went, ah! <laughs> she was yeah. like, what? And I said, I just didn't feel like talking about it. Yeah, no, I understand that. Conversely, my Aqualad was Cyborg. Hey, me too. Hey, nice job. We have a quorum. Good job, Borgie. 
Mm -hmm. No, he does great in this. Both in the war game early on, he's the guy who takes out Jericho. He first zaps him when he has taken over Starfire's body, just enough to stun Coriander. And then when Jericho tries to jump in his body, he closes one eye and just has his infrared vision eyeball, and he uh, he takes out Jericho. So he does a great job with that. He also refuses to be kink-shamed by Beast Boy, and it's like, garbage. you know what? Yeah, I like Victorian etchings of dragons having sex with carriages and steam engines. That's what I'm into, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want your boring garbage porn. It's boring and garbage. Go away, salad head. Yes. Also, he recognized the physical manifestation of Raven's evilness, which no one else did. That's true. He went through the tapes. Mm-hmm. The tale of the tape tells that Raven has been getting subtly eviler, which, again, it's odd that there is a physical manifestation of evil, but her eyebrows are, uh, they're Fully. migrating north and turning into eyeballs. Can't yeah. be argued. That's just science. Yeah, don't look at me like that. I'm not gonna, you're looking, he's... I'm trying to push my eyebrows up as high as I can. <laughs> you can't do it. You, you don't have a evil bone in your body. Ah, Thanks, Corey. Corey, did you have a timestamp for this issue? Yeah, I did. I had two of them. One of them doesn't count because it was a reference to a song that came from 1968. I had to look that one up, too. When It was a cool song. When Jericho is playing guitar alone in his room... He is playing Classical Gas by Mason Williams. I was familiar with that song, but I decided I wanted to listen to it again. And I thought that maybe it was a timestamp. I looked it up. No, the song came out in 68, as you mentioned. But the version that I first found was Mason Williams and Mannheim Steamroller <laughs> doing the song together, which was in 1987. <laughs> so this wouldn't have happened yet. But I gotta say, hearing that version made me completely convinced that Jericho is super into Mannheim Steamroller. That just makes perfect sense, and it clarified a lot about his character to me. Interesting. But you did have an actual timestamp? I did, yeah. Uh, there was also a mention of Michael Jackson from Beast Boy. When they are fighting Jericho in their war games, Cyborg is attempting to locate Jericho's heartbeat, and... Beast Boy is saying, I'll find him faster as my adorable Inspector Belvedere Bloodhound character that I just invented, which is fucking adorable and is a character that he invented. I was looking up, is Inspector Belvedere Bloodhound? Is that a timestamp? Couldn't find any references to it. So I think that's just the name that uh, Beast Boy has assigned to his Bloodhound alter ego, which I think is adorable. That is a great dog name. If I somehow... Belvedere? Blo Bloodhound? You're going to name him Belvedere or Inspector Belvedere? I don't want to give Beast Boy too much props, but that's a great dog name. It is a really good dog name. Also reminds me of Mr. Belvedere. Mm. Who I cannot... Okay, you, you know the song for the Mr. Mr. Belvedere? Mm -hmm. the, when you drop kick a jacket, when you walk through the door, no one cares. <laughs> and that's how it goes. Who the, how the fuck do you drop kick a jacket? That's really difficult. Like a drop kick? Drop the... Jacket and kick it. Okay, so you're picturing it like a like a football where you drop it and then kick it. Yeah. I was picturing like a pro wrestling drop kick, which would be really <laughs> impressive and difficult. And I cannot imagine Mr. Belvedere doing. 
No, not at all. I mean, that's like... Uh, and especially if, like, you're holding the... Like, how do you... It would just like, you got to throw the jacket in the air and then just drop kick it. I mean, like, there are a lot of, like, bigger guys that are pro wrestlers who could do really good drop kicks, like uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, say. But uh, I can't see Mr. Belvedere getting that. Also, it would just be deeply unsatisfying because you have to fall down. Yeah, no, you would... And the jacket would just move. It would just crumple around your feet. Yeah, if anything, move a few inches away from you and just fall on the floor. Yeah. So don't dropkick your jacket when you walk through the door. No one cares. (laughs) What are we talking about? Uh, That Damian Marley song where he references Bam Bam Bigelow. Oh, yeah, that's what we were talking about. Oh, Um, timestamps. My timestamp was also a Beast Boy mention. He mentioned that he had been dreaming of Jennifer Beale. Hmm. And that is a reference to Flashdance, which had come out the year before. Oh, shit, that's right. Which is a weird fucking movie. Have you seen that recently? I have not seen it recently, but I have I do remember thinking, I don't feel good about watching this, actually. I saw it when I was a kid. Oh. Which is inappropriate, mm-hmm. but is also the only context it makes sense in. You can't watch that movie after knowing what actual strip clubs are. Because the strip clubs that she's in in the movie that were, that she's a dancer in are these weird experimental like avant-garde like performance dance clubs that are frequented by blue-collar workers, like miners and shit. And it's like, what the fuck is even happening? But as a kid, you're like, yeah, I guess that's what grown-ups do. It's this a city. Yeah. Compared to, you know, where I grew up <laughs> That's what those big city folks get up to. They go and see experimental dancers where she's somewhat scantily clad, but mostly is doing these elaborate pantomimes that involve, like, ornate set pieces. Confusing. Very. Kind of want to watch that movie again. Yeah, all right. Okay. And that's the timestamp. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most worthy of note? Not only did Beast Boy not get the Beast Boy, he also had the cutest pajamas I think I've ever seen him wear. He did. They were adorable. He is wearing bright yellow pajamas that are covered with bright red hearts. It's a really cute look. Mm -hmm. It also, I believe, is the entire reason for this relaunch of the series with the enhanced printing techniques and the fancier paper. I think that George Perez really, really wanted to draw those pajamas, and it simply could not be done on newsprint because the color would bleed through too much. My proof of this is that is the only significant difference between the (laughs) New Teen Titans Volume 2 Number 1 and the reprint in Tales of the Teen Titans Number 60. In Tales of the Teen Titans Number 60, it is the crappier newsprint... And Beast Boy is wearing plain yellow pajamas. What? That are boring as fuck. Look at those drab yellow pajamas. What's the point even? Yeah, that's crazy. No need for them. Wow, that Baxter paper is amazing. It makes such a difference. The colors just pop so much. And like I said, everything else is reprinted in... A pretty close version of it. Obviously, the colors are a little bit duller and they bleed through and there's not the same clean separation of them. But 
those pajamas, they simply could not be rendered on newsprint. And so I think Perez was just so intent on having those pajamas match his vision that he pioneered this entirely new format that DC called the new format. Dang. A hell of a pair of pajamas. For love of PJs. Mm-hmm. The only other sartorial choice I wanted to bring up, Coriander's younger brother. Uh, what did we decide his name was? Cinnamon? No. Turmeric? Tur- uh, yeah, probably Turmeric. Is cosplaying as Namor. He is wearing a regal cape and no shirt and a little speedo. And I wonder if maybe Adeline Wilson had been perhaps dallying with a Tamaranian. Because everybody on Tamaran has a perm Mm -hmm. and also has giant lemur eyes. Mm -hmm. So, just saying. Man, I have commented before that his eyes creep me out when he does the taking over thing. But Uh in this issue in particular, especially with the... The artwork is beautiful and it's amazing, but when he does the second takeover of uh, Raven, man, that's some creepy peepers. Yep. Ugh. Well, he's a creepy peeper with some creepy peepers. What was your favorite sound effect? I'm going to start with my backup. I think your backup's my favorite. Oh, really? Can I take it? Sure. Cyborg face palms. <laughs> Jericho. <laughs> so hard. And perhaps is firing something out of his hand, but is maybe just face palming him, but it makes a noise. Fam! And I like to believe that Cyborg is just seeing what Jericho is up to, and it's like, fam! Yeah. <laughs> and just face palms him, and it's delightful, especially given Jericho's later actions in this issue, seeing him get a uh, face palmed like that. So cathartic, and the noise, fam! Yeah, no, it's a beautiful panel. It's very mm-hmm. dynamically illustrated as well. Jericho really gets it good from mm-hmm. Cyborg. Yeah, that was my backup. My favorite one, though, was uh, on the preceding page on page four. And it's Cyborg zapping Starfire. Mm-hmm. And it makes the noise. Sazak! Yep, Sazak. Very... He's a Sazlego Sazmaniac. Uh, yeah, it's... done with timestamps, dude. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was another one. Nope. Yeah, that is a fucking gorgeous panel, too. Like, it is just all Kirby Crackle and a glowing maroon silhouette of Starfire slash Jericho getting sazacked. It's so cool looking. Yep. Good job, Cyborg. Mm-hmm. On both counts. Indeed. Speaking of dynamic and well-illustrated panels, Corey, what was your favorite panel? Oh, man. The art in here is rich. It is astounding. I sometimes hesitate to go with the double page or full page things, but... You're going with Trigon getting the bag of grated cheese treatment? No, no I... <laughs> oh! <laughs> I, I was super impressed by that. But I liked page 13, the space scene. The spaceship leaving? Yeah. That was the one that I had, too. The The art throughout is gorgeous, But the design on that spaceship and the colors of it and the outer space scene, it's so fucking good. That's amazing. And the superimposed panel of uh, Starfire's mom is in the foreground, but the background is so crazy detailed. And I don't know, like when I was a kid, like if that spaceship had been a toy, that would have been... Oh man, it's it's, it's just the most awesome. Yeah, it's fuchsia and yellow and it's so spaceship looking. It is totally space. It's not at all Terry. Oh, man. We, that's a blast from the past, huh? Back? Yep. Yeah, I actually thought of that, and 
my notes that just says space with an exclamation point. It sure is. Well, Corey, I believe that's just about all the minutiae we have. So, I have but one question I must ask of you. We're going to go with the date of the reprint on this because we have already covered August of 1984. So, in the year of our Lord, 1985, and the month of our Lord, December, what was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! Wow. So, it was cold. It sure was. He had his parka and his moon boots on, and he was... It's a good look. Yep. Dealing with some unpleasantry. Oh, dear. Yeah, he had to be the grown-up in the room, as it were, but the room was not a room. The room was a parking lot. Oh. And Hawk, of Hawk and Dove, Hank Hill. Hank Hall. Hall. Hank Hill would be the guy from King of the Hill. I always get those mixed up. Hank Hall would be a terrible salesman for propane and propane-related material. Neither one a real pacifist, though. No, that's true. Hank Hall and Speedy had really gotten into it. Oh, dear. Because that was the month and the year that two new cars had just come out. Ooh, were either of them Buicks named after swords? Neither of them, strangely enough, were Buicks named after swords. Weird! But... It turns out both of these guys were not really flush or rolling in it, so they were kind of had more of an economy car budget. Oh. But they had very, very strong feelings. About the Renault Lacar and the Yugo? No. Actually, so Hawk had gotten himself a sweet-ass new Mercury Sable. Ooh. And he was very proud of this vehicle. And it turns out that Speedy had also invested in what he thought was really the most masculinely named of the economy cars of that era, which was the first run of the Ford Taurus. Oh. And they had gotten to drinking, and he did have the Taurus that was like the station wagon-looking one. Ooh, and nice. And so Hank started kind of needling him about having like a, uh, like a suburban family. family car. Yeah. And yeah, just one thing led to another. It went outside, and uh, Aqualad had to had to jump in and and break him up and tell him, "Boys, it's not worth it. They're both totally cool cars. <laughs> I would be happy to be seen in a sable or a Taurus." Sure. And um, was able to avoid bloodshed. Oh, good for him. Mm -hmm. And that was what he was up to. Well, he had to send Beaky home with with Hank, but uh, oh, gotcha. You know, Keep... had to yeah, split it up. Right. Yeah, like when I was bartending, people would get into a fight. You send one person outside, and then you wait 15 minutes before you kick the other person out. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. You could have used a beaky. I could have used a beaky. I think we could all use a beaky in our lives. Mm. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was probably up to. One of the other things that he was up to was trying to chill out and watch what he thought would be some nice, soothing Canadian television. Hmm. Aqualad wanted to really just calm down, get a little bit mellow, and so he turned on Anne of Green Gables, the uh, Canadian miniseries that premiered on December 1st. Unfortunately, he only made it about halfway through the first episode, where there was a scene where... Uh, you're familiar with Anne of Green Gables, right? You've watched it several I, hundred I've times. I've seen a few episodes. You've got an Anne of Green Gables t-shirt. I've seen you wear around a lot of times. So you remember, of <laughs> course, in the first episode, 
the woman who Anne had been staying with, starts spewing some over-the-top orphan-bashing hatred at Anne, calling her orphan scum and saying orphans are no good. And that, you know, hit home for Aqualad when he watched that. He's an orphan, and pretty much everyone he's ever met is an orphan, because that's how DC Comics works. So he got really, really pissed off and just didn't end up watching the rest of the show and learning that it's, you know, she she ends up in a much better situation. When she gets to PEI? What's PEI? Prince Edward Island? Oh. You know that. You're, you're a real gable head. But he never made we, it that we prefer far. Gablers. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You're right. It's a Trekkie Trekker thing. Mm-hmm. Your Gabler is more respectful. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to disparage you and your ilk. Um, <laughs> you are forgiven. <laughs> but he was still pretty riled up from that. And uh, he ended up uh, a couple days later at a football game. It's not generally his sport of choice. Mm. He, again, is trying to not get too riled up. And, you know, his sport of choice would be uh, women's tennis. And that always just. It just gets him too revved up. He gets too angry, so he decided to sit that one out. Doesn't want to lose any more bets. Yeah. So instead, he's like, oh, Dolphins versus Broncos. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good contest. And so he went there, and he's still just a little bit uh, a little bit antsy in his pantsy from uh, that Anna Green Gable show, mm. as will happen. Mm-hmm. He's obviously rooting for the Dolphins in this situation, you know? Sea mammals versus horses. I think he maybe did a little bit of checking and was like, are these uh, seahorse broncos? Mm. No? Well then, I'm a Dolphins man. And so he was rooting for the Miami Dolphins, uh, whose quarterback Dan Marino was going up against John Elway for the first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he maybe would not have normally done this, but his emotions being elevated as they were, he had a beaky fuck with some wind currents there. Which was maybe a contributing factor for Dan Marino throwing for 390 yards in that game, scoring three touchdowns, and winning the game 30-26. to And that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Bad job. Really? How is that a bad job? I don't know, I just remember my 6th grade teacher, Mr. Harris, he was a really cool guy, and he had... You remember, maybe that was 84 when uh, Miami played the Patriots? 85 or 86, I forget which season it was, but it was the year that ultimately the uh, the Patriots ended up fighting the Bears. It was the year of the Super Bowl shuffle. That's right. For yeah. the for the Super Bowl. But before that, there was Squish the Fish. Yes, there was. And I don't know, I just can't get behind. <laughs> you can't get behind Dan Marino <laughs> to this day. Dan Marino. I mean, the New England Patriots did beat the Miami Dolphins that year. So, you know, you can't have that many hard feelings about it. I they made guess. it all the way to the Super Bowl. There, now, everybody remembers the Super Bowl shuffle. Do you remember what the New England Patriots song was that they made a video for? No, I didn't It was know terrible. Nobody it. remembers it. It was called Bear Busters. <laughs> and it was to the tune of Ghostbusters. <laughs> and it was super shitty. Oh, did Ray Parker Jr. get any money for that? I hope so. Yeah, he would have had to just hand it back over to Huey Lewis. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> Anyway, that's what Aqualad was probably up to. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a podcast. (laughs) Pretty sure. Yeah, more or less. We'll be back next week with a Defenders issue where we find out how they will recover from their radiation poisoning. Or will they? 
Indeed, time will tell. And we will tell you once time tells us, a week from now. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on all of the internet platforms that exist, including Facebook, <laughs> Tumblr, <laughs> uh, LinkedIn. That's true, I did that. We are actually on LinkedIn now. <laughs> yeah, so contact us with your business needs. Want us to sell you a toothbrush? We don't sell toothbrushes, but if you want us to sell your toothbrush to other people, we'll tell them to buy it. But until we tell you, nobody buy any toothbrushes. Yeah. We're playing hardball. Yeah. And yeah, you can leave us reviews on the podcast application that you're using to listen to this. Just open that application up on your Apple Newton or whatever you're listening to it on and type in the words, tighten up the defense is the best. I listen to it every day. Love me. Thank you. Alexa, leave five-star review for Tighten Up the Defense on Spotify. Oh, that's a good idea. Have you tried that? No, but I, I think I just did it. So all of our listeners have now just done it. Ah! That's how uh, this works, probably. That's pretty clever. Thank Maybe. you. I know you can listen to Tighten Up the Defense on Spotify now. That's so, great. Yeah. If you would like to donate to us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to... A bunch of bonus material that is only for donors, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. A uh, monthly show that Lisa and I host. And yeah, there's some other stuff on there too. So, you know, I would really appreciate it. Thanks. And I really appreciate you. You guys are great listeners. Way to listen. Yeah. <laughs> Until next time. Um... Don't brush your teeth until you hear from us. Safety first. I guess you can brush your teeth, but just don't buy any new stuff for toothbrushing. Just tell you what. Don't... The toothpaste is fine. Just It's just the toothbrushes, right? That yeah, it's just to... the brushes. So just yeah. use your finger. They're like an old sponge. <laughs> oh. I... Don't do that, guys. Co Corey, don't back down. Do you want to get that toothbrush money? so bad but i can't good have they can use a sponge have you smelled an old sponge use a new sponge there we go How oh unless that? unless unless maybe we could sell sponges well that's good too okay until next time buy some sponges thank you goodbye <laughs> and they know it Vanilla is a very interesting spice. It is. It gets a bum rap. It does. It's it's delicious. It adds a lot of flavor and a lot of notes to different things. And it was so highly sought after. Very difficult to grow. It mm -hmm. took them forever to figure it out. Yeah, you gotta go to Madagascar. Fucking get some lemur technology on that. Mm -hmm. That's the epiphyte. Man, Madagascar seems pretty fucking rad. I'm gonna go there one day. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Fucking lemurs. Vanilla. The fuck else do you need you know something like 89 percent of the species there are not found anywhere else on earth that's amazing 
Madagascar.